We are continuing our study in the book of Revelation. As Joel alluded to and others have, we've, we have a, a weighty passage of scripture in front of us this morning. <clears throat> of all of God's attributes, of all of his characteristics, uh, there's one, I would say, that men are most apt to apologize for. They would, of course, never admit that God has any blemish on his character, yet there's something about God that they tend to avoid. Well, as the title of this message suggests, I'm talking about the wrath of God. The subject of God's wrath is not something we often entertain. It's one of those things we're happy to keep locked away. For many, there's even a kind of secret resentment for the topic that rises in their hearts. Some believe the wrath of God is utterly inconsistent with the goodness and love of God. They seek to banish the thought from their minds. Even if we believe our understanding of God is sound, there's, there's a severity in the topic of God's wrath that suggests that its contemplation is to be avoided. For all our assumptions and reservations about the wrath of God, we have to ask, what do the scriptures say? What do the scriptures say? Well, if we consider what scripture says about the wrath of God, we will discover that God has made no attempt to hide the details about his wrath. A.W. Pink said, he is not ashamed to make it known that vengeance and fury belong to him. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 39 through 41, we read, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. It may surprise you that there are more references in Scripture to the wrath of God than there are to his love and kindness. <laughs> Psalm 7 verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. One translation says it this way, God is a just judge. He is angry throughout the day. Why does God feel indignation every day? Why is he always angry? Well, the simplest answer has to do with his holiness. Because God is holy, he hates sin. He hates all sin, and his anger or wrath constantly burns against sin and the sinner. A.W. Pink again, How could he who is the sum of all excellency look with equal satisfaction upon virtue and vice, wisdom and folly? How could he who is infinitely holy disregard sin and refuse to manifest his severity toward it? How could he who delights only in that which is pure and lovely not loathe and hate that which is impure and vile? End quote. Danny said it a couple weeks ago, it is the nature of God that makes hell as real as heaven. What exactly is the wrath of God? <clears throat> The wrath of God is his eternal hatred of all unrighteousness. His eternal hatred of all unrighteousness. It is God's displeasure and indignation toward all that is evil. 
One theologian said it this way, it is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It is his response towards those who have rebelled against his authority. And it is this response that we have to study this morning. I'm not sure how you feel about the wrath of God. Maybe you're one who's apt to apologize for it. Maybe you affirm God's wrath, but you have a hard time seeing its value in thinking long and hard about it. Maybe you deny it. Whatever the case, this morning we're going to let the scriptures guide our response. And so if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. Uh, if you have a blue Bible there in the pew, it's on page 1036. This morning, we're, we will see two scenes that teach us how to respond to the wrath of God. Two scenes that teach us how to respond to the wrath of God. <clears throat> if you've been with us, you know the book of Re Revelation contains uh, three series of judgments. They're referred to as the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Uh, each series contains seven specific judgments. The judgments follow one another and come out of each other. For example, the trumpet judgments come out of the seals and the bowl judgments come out of the trumpets. In Matthew 24, 8, Jesus compared this period of time, this tribulation period to birth pains, compared it to birth pains. This suggests that's, that the tribulation progresses and the judgments become more severe there's inter intervals between judgments and those intervals become shorter and shorter. So in the same way, a, a woman that's going through labor increases the severity and the, 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 per, the time gets shorter and shorter in those, those birth pains. So we have the same illustration here in these judgments. As we move into chapter 15 of Revelation, we move into the final series of judgments. We're nearing the end. These are the bold judgments, and these judgments are outlined in chapters 15 and 16, and so this morning we're going to just see the beginning of them. Chapter 15 is, is a kind of preface to God's final judgment. Chapter 15 is, a, is the stall that emphasizes the terminal nature of what's coming. It's a pregnant pause that heightens our awareness and communicates the importance of what's, what's coming next. It's God's way of saying, pay attention, pay attention. Let's look together at the first scene where we are going to be taught to rejoice in the wrath of God, to rejoice in the wrath of God. The first verse is an introduction. It gives us a preview of what's coming. Chapter 15, verse one. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last for with them, the wrath of God is finished. John sees another sign in heaven, and it is great and amazing. It is great and amazing in the sense of something that is both dreadful and foreboding. Seven angels with seven plagues. One reason the sign is great and amazing is that there are, that these seven angels and their judgments are the last. In the original language, the sense is emphatic. Seven plagues the last ones. John knows that the bull judgments are worse than anything he's, pre he's seen previous. These are the last set of seven, and with their disposal comes the full weight of God's anger. Your Bible says, 
with these seven plagues, the wrath of God is finished. The idea is that when these bowls are tipped, God's wrath will be brought to its ultimate goal. The idea of being finished is the same as Jesus used on the cross when he said, it is finished. One commentator said it this way, God did not leave his work of redemption half completed and he will not leave his work of judgment half completed either. Verse two, we're introduced to another group. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. This group, standing beside the sea of glass mingled with fire, they are called conquerors. We might call them overcomers. They overcame the deceptions of Satan aimed to pull them away from Christ. You may recall we've known something of this group before. Chapter 2, verse 7, we first read about them. Paul writes, or excuse me, John writes, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then in verse 11, chapter 2, he, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We saw them in action in chapter 12, verse 11. Chapter 12, verse 11. And they, they have conquered him. The him there is the accuser of the brothers. That is Satan. They have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. These are the conquerors. And then most recently, we saw them in chapter 13, verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath. The it there is the second beast, the false prophet referred to as it. The second beast was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be what? To be slain. These conquerors were slain. It appeared that the beast had the upper hand in slaying them, but we read in chapter 15 that they were the ones that conquered. The martyrs were given the ultimate victory. John says that they conquered the beast its image, and the number of its name. These ideas or features refer specifically to that false prophet I mentioned, that second beast in chapter 13. It was these obstacles that the martyrs overcame, while others, they acquiesced. And what are these conquerors doing? Well, with the harps of God in their hands, verses 3 and 4, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds or your works, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This group of martyrs is singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Song is not the same song Moses sang, but it does follow a similar pattern as the song of Moses. And this pattern is found in Exodus chapter 15. I'm going to go there just real briefly and read some of these verses to show the connection. Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses. 
It's a pattern that we read here. Chapter 15, Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he is triumphant. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And then he closes in verse 18. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Moses led the people in a song of deliverance and a song of God's coming judgment. So we have the song of Moses. This martyr's song is not only the song of Moses, but it's a song of the lamb as well. Now the lamb, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that. These martyrs are singing the song of the lamb because Jesus is the source of their deliverance. As the lamb, Jesus is pictured as the one who offered his life up as a sacrifice for the many. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We saw this song in chapter five, verse nine, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Like the song of Moses, the martyr song is not a verbatim song, but it expresses the themes of God's faithfulness his deliverance, his judgment, and his holiness. One commentator, John Phillips, he compared the two songs. The song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. The song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over Babylon. The song of Moses told how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb tells how God brings his people in. The song of Moses was the first song in Scripture the song of the lamb is the last. As for the specific content of this song, God is praised for his work and his ways. Verse four, we have this kind of rhetorical question. Who will not fear, O Lord? Who will not fear? When John penned these words, he did so in a way that expresses an emphatic denial of a future possibility. And when put in the form of a rhetorical question, it implies a very strong assertion of the opposite. Who will not fear you, O Lord? Certainly all will fear you. In fact, they must fear you. Why? Well, for you alone are holy, the song says. And all the nations will come and worship you. And for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
Well, what are the righteous acts? What's the context? What are they praising God for? What will make the nations come and worship the king of the nations? In what sense is God considered holy? Here. The context is God's judgment. It's the wrath of God. The conquerors are praising God for the completion of his wrath. They're rejoicing in the demonstration of God's anger. And so in this first scene, we learn something about how we ought to respond to the wrath of God. When was the last time you rejoiced in the wrath of God? I'm sure you marvel at God's knowledge. I'm sure you admire God's wisdom. I'm sure you give thanks for his truthfulness. You're astonished by his goodness. You're fascinated by his love and his mercy. You're awed by his holiness. But what of his wrath? As I mentioned in my introduction, it may not be immediately obvious how we are to thank and praise God for his wrath. Yet here we see a group of martyred saints praising God as he prepares to execute his wrath on the earth. And I believe these, these conquering saints can teach us something about how to deal with God's wrath. What they teach us is that, the, that God's wrath is not something to be avoided. It's not a doctrine to be avoided. In fact, it's a reason to praise him and it's a resource in our pain. Consider first how the wrath of God is a reason to praise him. God's wrath is as much a part of his character as his sovereignty, as his holiness, as his power, as his faithfulness, as his goodness, as his patience, as his mercy, his love, etc. God is equally all these things to their perfection. God is not more loving than he is wrathful, nor are any of his attributes tainted in any way. Each and every expression of his character is in perfect unity. When we fail to praise God for all that he, he is, we commit a sin of omission. When we fail to see God for all that he is, we are carving an image of God. Carving an image of God to worship. The Bible makes no excuses for the wrath of God. Recall the words from Jesus in Luke chapter 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. These are the words of Jesus. It's God alone who has this power. Jesus makes no apology, no excuses for the wrath of God. And although it might challenge us, <clears throat> excuse me, we must see the wrath of God as the martyrs in Revelation 15 did, as a reason to praise him. The wrath of God is not only a reason to praise him, but it's also a resource in our pain. The martyred saints of Revelation 15 also teach us that God's wrath comes to us as a resource in pain. Paul had had this thought in mind in Romans chapter 12 when he wrote, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but do what? Leave it to the wrath of God. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. 
For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When you and I are wronged in this world, it's right for us to appeal to the wrath of God. This is what this verse is teaching us. And if you've heard of the, the Boet Everett factory, uh, maybe you've heard of this factory. It's in Everett, Washington. It's, it's the biggest warehouse and the largest building in the world. It's a vast building. It, it measures 4.3 million square feet. It was constructed to build the 747, and uh, they don't build that there anymore. They build the 767, the 777, and the 787 there, and soon to be the 797, I suppose. And if you don't know, those are airplanes, really big commercial airlines, airplanes. For some scale, you, you could put 80 football fields in that building, 80 football fields in that building, and you could still have room left over. Now, imagine a sign on this building that says, the wrath of God, the largest building in the world, and it's got a giant sign that says, the wrath of God. Now, whenever you are wronged, whenever life happens, whenever you're wrongfully accused, God wants you to put it well, not in that building. It's an illustration of a very large place that has room for all of those wrongs. God wants you to pack it away and put it in that building. He doesn't want you to stuff it down. I don't know what that means. He doesn't want you to do that. He doesn't want you to overlook it. He doesn't want you to forget about it. He wants you to entrust it. Entrust it. It's different. Paul said, leave it to the wrath of God. God is the manager of the storehouse of, storehouse, storehouse of wrath and he will address every wrong. Every wrong will either be covered by the blood of Jesus, every wrong will either be covered by the blood of Jesus, amen, or judgment will be meted out exactly to the perfect degree according to his perfect character and nature. And who's the perfect example of this? Putting all those wrongs in the storehouse of God's wrath. It's Jesus. We actually read it a couple weeks ago, 1 Peter 1, 22. It says, Peter says, when he was reviled, this is our Lord Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He took all those wrongs and he, he said, God, you'll sort it out. You'll figure that out. I don't need to seek vengeance. I don't need to repay evil for evil. That's God's business. Jesus entrusted his experience to God's wrath and Paul urges us to do the same. And I'm arguing the martyred saints of Revelation 15 are also demonstrating and teaching us showing us that we ought to do the same. You and I can rightly respond to the wrath of God if we see his wrath as a reason to praise him and we see his wrath as a resource in our pain, that we can entrust all of those wrongs to the wrath of God. God will sort it out. We don't need to revile. If verses one through four has, have taught us something about responding to the wrath of God, verses five through eight will teach us something about how to prepare for the wrath of God, how to prepare for the wrath of God. Verses five and six, 
After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. Here we have the seven angels that emerge from the presence of God, and they're dressed and ready for action. Their garments are pure bright linen, which is most likely a reflection of their heavenly glory. We often equate glory with brightness. So these heavenly beings are bright. They're wearing golden sashes, which implies they are important and they've been given a specific task. These angels have been marked out. They've been commissioned by the Lord. The specific act of commissioning is carried out by those closest to the very presence of God. Verse seven, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. You may recall these creatures from chapter four. It was there that John was given access to the very throne room of God. In chapter four, verse six, we read, and before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. These mysterious creatures surround the throne of God and ceaselessly praise him. It was one of these creatures that entrusted the seven angels with the seven bowls of God's wrath. The imagery of a bowl is not insignificant. What do you do with a bowl? The most basic level, a bowl is used to store or collect something for a season. If you were going to store, if you were going to keep something for a long time, you, you probably wouldn't put it in a bowl. You'd put it somewhere else. A bowl, a bowl is used to store something and then pour it out, to empty it. The imagery helps us see that God has been storing up his wrath with the, the purpose of eventually pouring it out. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 10, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works and all that are done on it will be exposed. This is what we're, we're seeing in Revelation chapter 15 and 16. It's in our passage that God's patience has come to an end. The full measure of God's righteous indignation against human sin is about to be poured out. Verse eight, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke and the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. If the image of the bowl is not insignificant, well, the imagery of the smoke is not as well. Smoke is found repeatedly in the scripture with, with God's presence. And it, it seems to communicate God's utter separateness from humanity. You ever tried to walk through a dense cloud of smoke? It's impossible. You can't do it. With every step, the smoke invades our lungs and it chokes us out. The smoke will win. After Moses constructed the tabernacle in Exodus 40, the glory of the Lord entered into that structure and we read, we read, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting 
because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I don't know what God's doing in there, but he obviously doesn't want me to come in because I can't get through that smoke. Well, likewise, the hot anger of God has consumed the sanctuary of God. The smoke is so dense that everyone has cleared out. And at this point in history, the only thing left is God's final judgment. And so you might say that at this point, the universe is paused. The moons surrounding a thousand planets have stalled. The brightness of a billion suns flicker. The breath of every creature is drawn back. The tempest of every sea quieted. The molecules filling every space of existence delayed. Like a dam under the full weight of pressure, the second before the fury of a raging flood, the universe waits. God himself stands alone in the sanctuary, ready to utter the fateful words, go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. With the topic of God's wrath so central in Revelation and specifically this morning, I must ask you, are you prepared for the wrath of God? Are you prepared for the wrath of God? You know, it's popular to criticize Jonathan Edwards in our day, but I can't think of a man who did a better job of preparing his people for the wrath of God. Listen to these famous words from Edwards. The wrath of God is like great waters that are restrained for the present, but they increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given and the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. And there's nothing but the mere pleasure, Edwards means will there, the mere will of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness of God's wrath would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And your strength and if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. He continues, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready for the string and justice directs the bow to your heart and strains at the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure again or will of God and that of an angry God with any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being drunk with your blood. Thus all you that never passed, listen to this, all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that never were born again and made new creatures and raised from the dead in sin to a state of new are in the hands, he famously said, of an angry God. 
You can hear my voice, and you have not experienced, as Edward said, a great change of heart. If you have not been born again, if you have not, he says elsewhere, thrown yourself on Christ for the forgiveness of sins, well, you are in the hands of an angry God. As John wrote in his gospel, you are under the wrath of God. If all this is true, and I assure you that it is, how can any of us escape disaster? How can we escape? Well, listen to these words from Paul. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the promise of the gospel. By whose blood? By the blood of Jesus Christ. And what does it mean to be justified? In short, it means to be forgiven, to be accepted as righteous. And how do we, how do we become accepted as righteous? We do so through faith to abandon our own means of finding hope and forgiveness in this world and trusting in the person and work of Jesus. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer said, between us sinners and the thunderclouds of divine wrath stands the cross of the Lord Jesus. If we are Christ through faith, then we are justified through his cross and the wrath will never touch us neither here nor hereafter. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. You get an amen? Well, <clears throat> close with this. Revelation 15 has given us two scenes that teach us something about how to respond to the wrath of God. Arthur Pink again our readiness or our reluctancy to meditate upon the wrath of God becomes a sure test of our heart's true attitude toward him. As this example given to us by the overcomers, as believers, we are to rejoice in the wrath of God. As those who have, been placed, who have placed their faith in the work of Jesus, we are to rejoice in the wrath of God. We are to rejoice that it no longer abides on us. We have been delivered from the wrath to come. Donald Gray Barnhouse tells a story of a, a group of farmers who were interrupted one Sunday morning by a neighbor plowing his field across from the church. You can easily picture that happening here. Noises from the tractor interrupted the worship service, and as it turned out, the man had purposely chosen to plow that field on Sunday morning in order to make a point. Having plowed the field and received the yield, the farmer wrote to his local paper, he asserted that although he did not respect the Lord or honor the Lord's day, he had the highest yield per acre of any farm in the country. He challenged the Christians to explain how this was possible. The editor of the paper printed a simple comment from the Christians, God does not settle all his accounts in the month of October. That is true, but God does settle his accounts. Scripture urges you, flee from the wrath to come. Do not suppose this message is intended for someone else. Do not be contented to think that you have fled. 
flee to Christ. Be certain, beg the Lord, search your heart. Ask him to show you yourself. Will you pray with me? God, we, we have a great topic in front of us um, to ponder and to meditate on, your wrath. And the message that you have brought to us today is not one easy to take in. We confess, I confess, my reluctancy to rejoice in your wrath but yet it is a part of your perfect character and you are perfectly just. And so every amount of wrath and anger expressed is, well, beautiful because you are beautiful. And so God, as hard as that may be to understand, we submit ourselves to your word. We ask, Lord, that you would draw us nearer to you and help us to understand you more deeply as we meditate and rejoice in your wrath. Lord, help us to see this this morning as we leave, as uh, to see the wrath of God anew, that we would see it as a reason to praise you and a resource in our pain. And God, I pray that as we consider if we are prepared for the wrath of God, I pray, God, that you would save those who have not thrown themselves on Christ. Think about David in Psalm 139. And we pray, Lord, that this would be our prayer. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me, in us. Lead us in the way everlasting. God, we ask for your help and your courage to do this by your grace. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.